All right, we are cruising through a, a study of attitudes, and we're trying to make an attitude adjustment in this class. Uh, we are on lesson nine, and we're going to talk about perseverance this morning, embracing perseverance. Uh, Nathan always gives me these great ideas for classes. It was his idea to do the attitude class, and uh, I think it was a couple years ago, Nathan, you asked me to do a whole quarter on perseverance. I thought, well, that sounds like a lesson, not a study, but we did it. We went through 13 weeks studying perseverance, and uh, throughout that study, we outlined principles of Christian perseverance. And so what I've done this morning is I've combined all eight of those principles in hopes that we'd have time to cover them this morning in our study of attitudes. And uh, so if it's familiar to you, we have been through it, not all in one lesson, but um, over the course of a quarter. And I think it's a good reminder and look forward to doing it. But before we get into the individual principles, let's talk about what perseverance is. And uh, there are synonyms, the word Perseverance is rarely used, if ever, in our English translations. Usually it's something like endurance or steadfastness. But the spiritual meaning of the word perseverance can be defined this way. Long obedience in the face of great difficulty. You don't talk about persevering through a movie you enjoy or an experience that is pleasurable to you. Perseverance is always in the face of great challenges, and it's not short-term, it's long-term. So I like this definition. It's going to be the one we use this morning, long obedience in the face of great difficulty. And the Bible calls for this in several places. Uh, we'll just look at three or four examples. Um, look at uh, Matthew 10, 22. Talking to the disciples, Jesus said, The one who endures to the end will be saved. It's endurance to the end. And so it's long obedience. And then you can look at uh, Paul's instructions to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. There he tells Timothy, Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. And of course, the steadfastness here is the perseverance we're talking about. Uh, here is 2 Timothy 3.10. Again, advice to Timothy. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Paul set an example for Timothy to follow of one who endured to the end. And finally, look at those eight Christian graces of 2 Peter 1, uh, beginning in verse 5, where Paul teaches, or Peter rather, teaches his readers to add one thing to another. And he says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness. And he goes on from there. So this is just a few examples. We'll look at others as we go through the individual principles. But you can see the Bible in general 
calls on us to endure, to persevere, to be steadfast. So how do we develop that in our life? How do we embrace perseverance? And in order to do that, uh, we're going to look at, as I said, eight principles that will help us develop this. And all these come from Scripture. So the first one is the principle of choice. And I believe our first lesson on attitudes was about choice. You have a choice of what attitude you're going to have. Well, if perseverance is an attitude, then of course you have choice. And the principle of choice says don't trust your emotions. Uh, your emotions are usually what tempt you to give up. Emotions are a test of your perseverance. Uh, your knowledge tells you, if I persevere, I'll be saved in the end. Your faith in Scripture does that. But it's your emotions that try to get you to quit. And uh, look at a few examples. Anger. It's not inherently wrong, but we're told to control our anger. And often we lose control of our anger and we fail to persevere. So follow James' advice in James 1.19. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Another emotion that will get us is lust. John talks about all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, pride in life, 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Uh, temptation comes through the desire within us, and that's when we often cease to endure in our striving to be pure before God. Discouragement is an emotion, and... Uh, Discouragement is a choice. Now, disappointment is not. I think it's good to distinguish disappointment from discouragement. You can't control whether or not you're going to be disappointed. The circumstances are going to come up that are not going to be favorable to you. Things are going to happen that you wish had not happened. You can't control that. But you can control whether you will be discouraged as a result of your disappointment. I think discouragement is a step down you can respond in a way that will keep you from giving in to discouragement. Uh, grief is an emotion that's not wrong, but how do you interpret that grief? We've talked about that already this quarter in class. Your grief is a natural emotion. If you don't have grief when things, things happen, uh, you're going to have some problems as a result. So it's natural and it's good to grieve, but how are you going to interpret the grief? And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, he doesn't want them to grieve as people who have no hope. So we grieve with hope. That's a choice that you can make. And then fear is another emotion that can be paralyzing and cause you to do crazy things and get, make you give up. And uh, you have a choice to fight through the fear with courage or to just give in to it. So choice you have a choice, don't trust your emotions, have faith in God. Secondly, the principle of assurance. The principle of assurance says, know that you know what's most important. Uh, let's look at a couple of verses that link assurance to perseverance. The first one is 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Paul says, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. I know whom I have believed, and that gives me the ability to guard 
what has been entrusted to me. Uh, Hebrews 10. Look at that. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 and following. The writer there says, Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. So you see the endurance there. And he talks about what they endured, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew, you see the assurance, you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. Again, assurance, which has a great reward you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So in that passage, you can really see the connection between assurance and perseverance. Because they knew, they endured. So there are two things to know here in the principle of assurance. And the first thing to know is know what's important. Um, purpose is essential to endurance you have to know where you're going, right, to keep on going. Uh, a lot of people live aimless lives, and, and as a result, they have no endurance. Uh, Sebastian Junger writes this, Humans don't mind hardship. In fact, they thrive on it. What they mind is not feeling necessary. Modern society has perfected the art of making people not feel necessary. He says, it's time for that to end. And when do you not feel necessary? It's when you don't know what you're doing or why you're doing it. And so if you know your why, as uh, the philosophers say, you can endure almost any what. You have to have a sense of what's important. Uh, I don't know how true this is, but it said that the pilgrims, when they came to the New World, in the first year they established a settlement. In the second year they elected a town council. In the third year, the town council planned to build a five-mile road into the wilderness. And in the fourth year, they voted to impeach the council. <laughs> so these people who could see all the way across the Atlantic Ocean, after a few years, could not see five miles into the wilderness. What happened? They lost their focus. So in the principle here of assurance... The first thing to know is know what's important. And then there's a second thing you've got to know. And the second thing is know that you know what's important. See, that's where insurance comes in. Not just the knowledge, but knowing that you know the knowledge. You see what I mean by that? Uh, in the Bible, you're not considered presumptuous to have certainty. I think some people are afraid of being too sure about things, even the things of God. But the Bible writers say we're writing this so that you can have assurance. 1 John 5.13, John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So the principle of assurance is know what's important and then know that you know what's important. And a lot of us struggle with that and need to work on that. Thirdly, the principle of faith. And uh, 
Most of you are familiar with the principle of faith. Trust God no matter what. Uh, so let's establish a link between faith and perseverance. I think a good verse is Romans chapter 1, verse 17. The righteous shall live by faith. Now, live there could be interpreted be saved. In fact, uh, some translations have the righteous shall be saved by faith. And uh, of course that's true. You know, God makes us righteous through Jesus Christ and we're forgiven of our sins, therefore we are saved. But there's a double meaning here in this verse that's quoted from Habakkuk. And uh, Paul also means the righteous shall live in terms of perseverance. They shall endure by faith. So faith gives you endurance as well as salvation. So what's faith? Faith is trusting in God no matter what. Uh, in Mark chapter 9, I like to use this example of the father of the demon-possessed boy. And he goes to Jesus in verse, I think it's 22, he says, If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And in verse 23, Jesus throws his words back in his face. If you can... If you can, he says, all things are possible for the one who believes. Now, what does that mean? That doesn't mean God's going to do anything you want him to do, but it does mean that all things are possible for God. Not necessarily all things will be done for the one who believes, but all things are possible. So a definition I like to use for faith is, faith is not knowing what God will do, but knowing that he can do anything. And that's what it is, trusting him no matter what, not always understanding, but trusting that he will do what's best. Uh, principle number four, the principle of strength. And the principle of strength says be resilient. Uh, so let's look at the connection between strength and endurance. Uh, for this, we'll go to Colossians chapter 1, verse 11. Paul says, Being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. So we're strengthened with the power of God, and that strength gives us endurance and patience with joy. What Christians need to realize is we are made out of tougher material than we realize. I picked up this from uh, a guy named Jesse Itzler. He talked about the 40% rule of the Navy SEALs. And the 40% rule says when your mind is telling you you're done you're only 40% done. You got 60% gas still left in your tank when your brain starts saying, stop, stop running or stop swimming, whatever it is Navy SEALs do in their training. Uh, they, they're taught that when your brain starts saying that, you're only 40% done. You still got gas in the tank. And all that means is you're more resilient than you think you are. And a lot of you found that out the hard way. You um, had to encounter things you never thought 
you could endure and you got to the other side of it. And it was hard, but you made it through. And you may still be hurting and you carry scars from it, but, but you endured it. We're made out of tougher material than we realize. We don't have to be victims of our circumstances. Epictetus said, Men are disturbed not by things, but by the view that they take of things. It's not the circumstances that define a person's character. It's how that person responds to the circumstances. Others have said, Life is 90% or life is 10% of what happens to you and 90% of how you respond to it. I like that idea. And, uh, you know, Paul obviously presented that in Philippians 4, where in verses 11 through 12 he says, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Uh, it's noteworthy that he said, I've learned this. And the Apostle Paul even had trouble at first with being content in all circumstances. But he realized he was made out of tougher material than he, than he thought. And he learned how to be content in whatever circumstances. Sometimes he had abundance and sometimes he was in need. But he didn't let the circumstances define his attitude. Where does the strength come from? Well, we read in Colossians 1.11, we're strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. I think a lot of us are trying to get by just on our own power. And when we do that, we fail to tap into a great resource in God who has omnipotent power. Why should we rely on our own strength whenever we can access the power of God? It doesn't make any sense. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 12, when Paul is talking about his thorn in the flesh, some physical ailment that he had, uh, he, he said that uh, he prayed for it to be removed. And Jesus' answer was, my grace is sufficient for you. And so Paul learned from that how to lean on God. And the implication is, if he had not had that physical ailment, whatever it was... He might have pridefully tried to power through, pulling himself up by his own bootstraps. But instead, he had to rely on, on God, and he learned, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. It's a paradox, but it's explained in that when we're weak, we depend on God, and that's where the real strength is. So the principle of strength is be resilient not by your own power, but by the power of God. That's four, that's half of the principles. I'm going to pause right here just in case somebody wants to make a comment or um, share something. I know I've been moving pretty quickly through this. Well, we do 
Richard's asking, what's the dividing line between depending on yourself and trusting in God? You know, we do bear some responsibilities. And in that sense, uh, was it Galatians 6, 5, each one must carry his own load. We have a load to carry. And um, a lot of that is born through faith. So definitely, you know, to the last point, part of the thing you have to do yourself is you have to put the trust in God. And there's some work involved in that. There's some effort involved in that. It doesn't just happen passively. And so that would be our side of it is faith. And then the other side of it, which is the larger percentage, is God taking over. But relinquishing that control to Him, that takes effort. So that, that'd be how I'd answer that. Uh, ready to move on to number five? Let's move on. I'll give you a chance to say more in a moment. The principle of patience. The principle of patience says good things come to those who wait. Let's turn over to James chapter 5. And uh, we're going to look at James 5, 7 through 11. key passage on patience, and it's translated in a variety of different ways. As I read through it, if you have a different translation, I'm reading the ESV, you're going to notice the variety. I don't think any two translations render this exactly the same way. And there's an instructive reason for that that I'll explain after we read it. But let's, let's read it first, James 5, beginning of verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness, King James says, patience there of Job. And you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The reason why the translations differ is because in the Greek, James is using two different words for patience. Two different words that can be translated to the English word patience. Uh, it's kind of like the word love. The English word patient is, is more nuanced in the Greek because it has more representations. Uh, the first word that James is using when he says, be patient, brothers, till the coming of the Lord, being patient about it, when he says, you also be patient, uh, by my count, the first four references to patience in that passage come from a Greek word, makrothumia. And macro means long. Thumia has to do with passions. So it means having a long response in your passions. Um, it has a, a Hebrew equivalent that means long of nose. 
which I think is funny. Uh, it doesn't mean you have a big nose, but it has the sense of taking a deep breath. What did your mother tell you when you started to get upset? Count to ten, right? What's that about? Count to ten. Wait. Delay your response. Don't give vent to your impulses. Take a deep breath. Think a little bit before you react. That's the meaning behind the first word James uses for patience. To be long in the passions. A delayed response. That's the idea. The second word is the word he uses in connection with Job. Translated steadfastness in the ESV. Hupomone. Hupomone. And it's a perfect word for what we're talking about, this long obedience in the face of difficulty. Uh, Macrothemia, the long passion word, is more passive. Hupomone is more active. And it, it just has to do with, with enduring, being steadfast, diligently moving forward one step at a time and not quitting and so it's helpful to see how James uses both those words in the discussion because it shows you how closely related patience is to perseverance some of us expect to sail through life without any obstacles in our way and we're surprised when things happen to block our progress. We'll say things like, why is this happening to me? Uh, this doesn't happen to everybody else. This only happens to me. Life is full of trials. Anytime you try to do something good, somebody's going to try to get in the way. Uh, in fact, resistance is usually evidence that you're on the right track. Don't be surprised when you're tried. It's part of life. Life can be very difficult for everybody. And so uh, patience is needed. Nobody perseveres without it. Next principle. Let's go to repentance. The principle of repentance is get back up when you fall down. When you drive a car, even on a straight road, do you lock your arms on that steering wheel and just keep your hands still and steady and straight? That's not the way to drive. Because when you do that, if you don't make corrections here and there, you're going to run off the road. Driving is all about making corrections all the time, just constantly correcting to the left and to the right to stay on the road. And the Christian life is like that. You don't become perfect when you come out of the waters of baptism. You're going to make mistakes. Sometimes, sadly, we make mistakes we know when we knew better. Uh, we do things that we know are wrong. 
And sometimes just due to ignorance and inexperience, we make mistakes. Sometimes life is just very challenging and, and we fail. And so that doesn't mean it's time to quit being a Christian. Now, I made a mistake. We know God forgives with the second law of pardon. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, John says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's available to every Christian. It's part of faithfulness is repentance and confession. We need that in our lives. We need to, to help one another through that, to keep one another accountable. We can't expect to be perfect. So what is repentance? Let's talk about that for a moment. What, when the Bible asks us to repent, what is it asking us to do? Well, it's not simply remorse. Remorse is just feeling bad about what you did. I think everybody naturally does that, at least at first before they sear their conscience to where it can't feel anything any longer. Um, remorse is just feeling bad about what you did. And that can be worldly grief. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. So the difference between repentance and remorse is repentance comes from remorse, but it takes a step forward and eventually leads to salvation. Repentance says, I'm going to change. Remorse leaves you where you are, and eventually you die spiritually. So it's not simply remorse, and it's not simply works. It's possible for a person to look like he has changed, to change his behavior externally when in, on the inside he's really just the same. And of course, you and I both know that's not going to last very long. If you shape up because you don't want to be in trouble anymore, you don't want to go to jail, whatever it is, and your heart doesn't change, well, eventually you're going to go back to your old patterns of behavior. That's just the way it is. That's not to say repentance doesn't change your behavior. Uh, John the Baptist in Luke 3, 8 said, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. The fruits he's talking about there are your works. But repentance is not just your works. It's a change of mind. In the Greek, it's metanoia. Meta meaning, meaning another or different or an afterwards, a second Noia meaning mind. So you have another mind. You have a changed mind. It's the second mind, the one after the sinful mind. And it's a mind that says, I'm going to do what's right, and I can do what's right because of the redemption that I have through Jesus Christ. You can't persevere without repentance. Perseverance is not about being perfect. Nobody perseveres without repentance. Any comments? I don't want to miss anybody. Okay, let's go to number seven. Number seven is prayer. And we talked about this at length last week. Prayer, obviously, is an important 
part of attitude. Last week we talked about how your attitude changes before prayer because there are conditions to come to God in prayer. During prayer, prayer itself is an act of humility and submission to the will of God, not my will, but thy will be done. And after prayer, uh, God promises to reward those who pray with peace, for example. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. So we'll talk about prayer here again. The principle of prayer is ask God for help. And there are all kinds of complicated explanations about prayer. As we talked about last week, prayer is simply just a conversation between a child and his father. God as Father invites us to pray to Him and to ask for help. A lot of people fail to endure simply because they, they don't pray. How many times does the Bible have to tell us that prayer works before we actually try it? You know, prayer is a very common theme in Scripture. And still, we neglect it. And then we wonder, well, why am I having such a hard time in my spiritual life? Why can't I get on track? Why do I have so much trouble with this particular sin in my life? Well, are you praying? God says, ask for help. He'll give you help. Um, so he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Everyone who asks receives. And whoever seeks will find. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And how does this work? You know, that, that's a mystery, how it works. If we simplify things by saying God is sovereign and His will will be done, and we just say that, then we won't be praying because we'll think, well, God won't hear our prayer. He already has His plan, and He's just going to do what He's going to do. But if we go to the other extreme and simplify prayer into saying, God will do whatever we ask Him to do, well, then we're in a very bad situation because the world is in the hands of fallible human beings who don't know what's good for them and whose desires conflict with one another. And so we're in a bind there. And we'll be, those of us who are smart enough will not pray for fear that our prayers may be answered. So it's somewhere in between. God is sovereign and He answers the prayer of His children. And how we get in between those two things is a mystery to all of us. Uh, nobody can fully explain that. But we know what the Bible says, and by faith we reach out to God and we pray. So perseverance is, you know, we said long obedience in the face of great difficulty. So what is perseverance? It's life without ceasing. But you can't have a life without ceasing if you don't pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Prayer. And uh, the last principle... Hope, the principle of hope says, smile at your future. Better things lie ahead. You can't speak the language of defeat and persevere. 
Do you remember the spies that Joshua, or Moses sent out into Canaan in preparation for taking the promised land? Uh, ten came back with a negative report. <clears throat> Only Joshua and Caleb came back with a positive report. And that negativity was contagious, and it spread throughout the whole camp. And as a result, they spent 40 years in the wilderness until that first generation out of Egypt died and their children were given the opportunity to take the promised land. We need to learn something from that. You can't persevere with the language of defeat. We're like grasshoppers to the people over there and the the land devours its inhabitants. That's the language of defeat. You lose before you even get started. You can't win that way. Perseverance requires hope. Hope is the ability to smile at the future, and it will carry you through all our challenges. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 6. Verse 11 says, We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Full hope till the end. And then in verse 19, he calls hope a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. I don't know about you, but I think the world needs a little hope right now. We need to be optimistic people that expect the best, knowing Christ is going to return, put the world to rights. He's going to judge the wicked reward the righteous, and we will live eternally with God in heaven. We've got to live as if we really believe that. There's a good future ahead of us. I think sometimes we get caught up in social media or the news and we let it destroy our hope. We need to take a break from all that negativity and know that the world makes a lot of money off of negativity and hatred, and uh, we're not a people characterized by that. We're not unrealistic. We know the problems that sin has brought into the world, but we're people of hope, and we know that, that God can overcome anything through His Son, Jesus Christ. So that, that's what I had for you this morning, eight principles of perseverance. And uh, that's the five-minute bell. We still have a little time. Does anybody want to add anything to what we've talked about? Yeah, Linda. When you fight for something for years and years, and you put enough in training, do you give up? Do you, is it vain repetition? No, not at all. You know, there's a couple of parables Jesus tells about that, one in Luke 11 and one in Luke 18. <clears throat> and the second one there in Luke 18 is about a widow who needs justice, and she is continually knocking at the judge's door, and the judge that could give her justice, he, he's not a good person. And so finally, he answers her request, not because he's a good man, but because he, she was bothering him. And Jesus tells that parable so that we don't give up, that we keep praying. Of course, we're not to make the point of analogy the character of the judge and God. That's not the point of analogy. 
The point of analogy has to do with the woman who's continually beating at the door, and eventually she gets what she needs. Now, what happens when we keep praying and we don't feel like we're getting results? We call it unanswered prayer. Although I really don't think there's anything in the Christian's life such as unanswered prayer. You get answers. It just may not be the answers that, that you want or expect. But what happens when you continually come, you're making, in order to do that, I don't, I don't know, if you do keep praying the same thing exactly, it could be vain repetitions. Because if you're a person of faith and you keep praying, you're, there are going to be slight gradual changes in you as you realize that God wants something different than what you're praying. It might be the same request with a little different attitude behind it. You might be getting, it might become easier and easier for you to say, not my will, but yours. Uh, you might start looking for other things. And uh, more importantly, the more you cry out to Him, the more you depend on Him and the closer you, you're drawn to Him. So, to answer your question... If you just, without any feeling or heart in it, say the same words every night before you go to bed, that's vain repetition. But if you're continuing to pray about a situation with your heart engaged, you're, you're going to change. And things around you as a result are going to change. And you're going to come to understand God better. I think we need to understand that's part of a prayer life is is not getting the results we expect. And that's not an unanswered prayer. You're getting answers that you didn't anticipate. It's not unanswered prayer. Anybody else want to add something? Yeah. With, with the question of taxes, Jesus said, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And uh, when it comes to faith and, and prayer... We should render unto ourselves the things that are ourselves and to God the things that are God's. Stay in your lane. There are some things under your control. Do those things. But there are things that only God can do. Give them to God. That's how you can free yourself from needless anxiety. Anything else? All right. Well, I appreciate your attention. That's all we have this morning on perseverance. Uh, we'll continue next week with a new subject.